it's actually amazing meeting people because you learn so much about yourself, about them, about the world. You, you learn things you would never know if you didn't meet that person. We are here today with Susan McPherson. Susan McPherson is founder and CEO of communications consultancy McPherson Strategies. She has more than 25 years experience in the field of marketing, public relations, and corporate responsibility. An angel investor, a popular speaker, and a regular contributor to high-profile business publications. McPherson has Twitter followers ranging from Ben Smith to Barack Obama and has appeared on Fast Company's list of top 25 women on Twitter. Her clients have included Dell Technologies, The Tiffany & Company, Foundation, Salesforce, and Taylor, and more. Susan, it's an honor to have you on. Thank you for taking some time to be with us. I am thrilled. Thank you. Yeah, so we want to start at the beginning. I want to learn, tell me from the start, what was your early childhood like, your family dynamic, where you're from? Let's, Let's get to know you a little bit from the start. Well, I often say, and I I certainly don't want to disparage any location, but I often say I'm from the dullest place on the planet in upstate New York, outside of Albany, which I will um, caveat that with saying it's it's a safe and uh, wonderful place to raise a family. I was the youngest of three. Uh, My parents were both public servants. My, My father was a professor for close to 40 years at a women's college. And my mother worked for public television in public information for for much of my, my, probably from my 10 to my age 20. And we were, we were an anomaly. We were probably the only Jewish family within, you know, 15 square miles. So I grew up very much being an other, always feeling like I was an oddball uh, because we ate different foods and I didn't have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when everybody else did. And I wasn't allowed to go to ballroom dancing classes with my friends in seventh and eighth grade on Friday nights because the country clubs didn't allow Jews. Um, so it was very, you know, odd. And I guess, you know, things that, you know, today you know, would, would, would definitely not exist. But also I had parents that were children of the Depression. All my grandparents came over from uh, what was then um, Soviet Union. Well, yes, Soviet Union um, in the early 20th century. And so my parents grew up being very frugal, spend within your means. But I think one of the gifts they gave me, well, several, several gifts they gave me, but one in particular was this notion of it's more about the places you see than the things you, you have, than the material things. My mom used to always say if something bad happened, at least no one, no one was hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if, if a cow... That's a very uh, <laughs> Jewish mother thing exactly. to say, right? I've heard that my whole life. Um, and it's funny to hear that, you know, it's culturally, that's something, you know, maybe w- we can relate to that's unique. Yeah. And, and But it's interesting, really. I mean, it does say a lot. Well, I'm 56 now. And when I look back at my life, I don't remember the things. I remember the trips. I remember the travels. I remember the experiences. And tragically, she was killed at the, when I was 22 and she was 56, which is the age I am now, um, in a god-awful hotel fire that killed 97 other people. So that, that what she used to say to me as a teen, obviously became so much more apparent, right? When, when mm-hmm. actually somebody actually was just ripped, ripped from the earth, you know, and this was in 1986, so long before 9-11, but had very similar overtones. It was... 
a fire was set by uh, a disgruntled employee um, mm. who, who basically torched the hotel. Susan, I want to um, come back and, and talk to you about that. But something you said kind of early on, sorry to yeah, interrupt yeah, no, you, um, um, kind of uh, caught my attention. You know, and you shared your, your age, so it gives some context. But, it, you know, I think people don't really appreciate that not being allowed to go to a country club, um, not being able to join, being, um, you know, uh, uh, because because you were Jewish is, is really recent history. Yeah. You know, I think oftentimes people feel like that's just... Uh, much further in the past than it actually is. And and I'm wondering, you know, maybe if you could elaborate a little bit on like really what that was like for your family. You you, you kind of indicated maybe you were uh, feeling like you were odd or something, you know, was different. You know, tell me like as, as a kid and or at that time in your life, you know, what did that do to you? What did that do for you? How did that make you feel and change kind of your experience that you had? You know, I wish I had the magic answer for that. Um, I think it made me crave normalcy, uh, you know, to, to, do, to go overboard, to surround myself with people that perhaps weren't, quote unquote, what I considered weird. You know, in fifth grade, I still remember a young woman named Cindy David and I have no idea whatever happened to her. So hopefully she's not listening to this podcast. Um, but she said to me, you know, you're going to go to hell because you killed Christ. And, you know, being a 10-year-old on the playground, of course, I came home crying hysterically. And I had no idea what, what that even meant. But it's hard at this point to, to recall exactly what then transpired. Um, sure. And, you know, I, I, I think my parents just, you know, for them, it was they picked upstate New York for a variety of reasons. My dad got a teaching position there, and the schools, the New York State public schools at the time, were very, very good, and education was number one. So, I think for them, it was just continue to peer, persevere and and relish in your differences. And and but that's really hard to tell a ten year old, right? I mean, sure, you know. And I'm sure you know later in life, the decisions I made, you know whether it be the, the, the man that I uh, married, um, we are not divorced, but, you know, things like that, that I think possibly were rooted in this kind of d- desire to be just like everyone else. When Yeah. Like I, I, that's kind of what I was curious about, you know, is, is, and, and you're right as a 10 year old, we don't really know how to make sense of any of this, right. It's kind of in hindsight, um, you know, that, that, like, as you said, there was a craving for normalcy. And then like, how does that play out as you pick partners or pick jobs? You know, I've talked pretty openly in my life about kind of, you know, my programming and certain kind of societal expectations that I think men had or in my family were valued and, and, you know, how that led me in my career and how that led me down the path that I went down. And so I do find like oftentimes these events, somebody saying something like that to you, it gets to be a bit of like an embodied experience that you maybe unconsciously live into until you later on, maybe, you know, can recognize that. But I, you know, I have to state, I mean, I, my experiences were nothing like people of color have experienced in this country for for right. hundreds of years, and I, I don't want to mm-hmm. go so far as say, "Oh, woe is me," you know. I, yeah. This, uh, you know, I I still was able to go to school. I 
was able to get a good education. I was able to get jobs. I wasn't discriminated against. So, you know, I do think it's important, but I, I, you know, I think it's important also to realize, like you said, this is not that far a bit long ago, right? You know, yeah. we forget also that world, you know, the Holocaust wasn't that long ago. And there's a revisionist history that is saying it never happened. Yeah. 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 And and you're right about all of that. I think, you know, it's important to kind of draw attention. You know, the point about the Holocaust is why I, you know, was really struck by, you know, your comments opening. And you're right. I mean, still relatively speaking, um, we were able to do a lot as Jews um, that that others were not. Mm-hmm. And still, that's probably the case. Um, you started to talk a little bit about kind of your mother yeah. and that story. And, you know, I read that in your bio and just, you know, kind of immediately, you know, had so much sadness and compassion for you. And I'm interested to kind of hear, um, I'm sure it's been something that's been super influential in your life um, in many ways. And yet, you know, I guess maybe at the beginning, maybe you could kind of go back and tell a little bit more about, you know, what happened Mm -hmm. and, and how that impacted you you know, at that time in your life? Sure, sure. Well, I will honestly say probably the first 10 years I was in a coma. I mean, a moving coma, a functioning coma. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you when, you when you suffer from that kind of loss that is so sudden that you can't plan for it, we, we don't have the tools the, the, to be able to, to process it. You know, I, of course, even at the, the immediate, I think, instinct for me was to run away. And, you know, at the time, my dad was still very influential in my life, of course, because I was still fairly young. And, you know, he insisted I stay in graduate school and not, and not, you know, take time off to leave because he wanted to instill some sense of normalcy. And this was also back in the day when there was not, you know, platforms and the internet and ways to find support for grief. I mean, you were literally handed, you know, seven books that existed on, you know, the bookshelf on how to deal with death. And, and again, growing up in a very Christian society, um, it was very much about, okay, you honor them when they die and then you move on and you never speak to them again. And one tenet of Judaism, or at least the Judaism that I was brought up in, is that even if people die, you continue to talk about them and you you know raise their, their memory all the time. So I think the, the hardest thing in the, my 20s probably was this notion that so many people ran away from me because they didn't know how to actually, they didn't know what to say. You know, it was, it was like, they felt like if they brought my mom up, it would bring me down. And what they didn't understand was she was never not on my mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do want to just fast forward for a second because about five or six years ago, dear friends of mine today, or, you know, five or six years ago, founded a platform called Modern Loss, which for anyone who goes through any kind of loss and is grieving, whether it be the loss of a pet, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a parent, you know, you name it. Um, it's a platform that provides all sorts of writings and connections to people so that you aren't alone. Okay. So I do think in my, in my twenties, there was very much of a, you know, I want to flee. And I ended up fleeing. Um, about five years later, I moved from Washington, DC to Southern California where I knew no one, uh, for, for a new job. And it was really, I think my quest, you know, again, in hindsight to start over, start afresh, forget about what happened, which, you know, haha, good luck. But, you know, mm-hmm. it, over my lifetime, 
the one, if I was to say one of the positives that came of dealing with such a tragedy is that you've already suffered the worst. So it enables you to take risks that perhaps you would be less likely to take. Because if it, the worst has already happened, what what else could happen? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, interesting. Really interesting perspective. That last piece I find to be um, pretty interesting. Uh, uh, compelling. L- let me just understand a little bit, though, because you know you were in your early twenties, and I totally get it. Makes sense this coma, and and also you know the idea that people were going away from yeah. you. You yeah. know that that I I understand that that even still today is probably a reaction that some people have. The triggers or the um, uncomfortable kind of space of being in um, that emotion with somebody mm-hmm. is really something that people maybe by and large are just not comfortable doing. Until and, they suffer uh, loss. Until they suffer. Until they experience something like that. Well, yeah. This um, this will give you an inkling of, the t- of, of my mom's personality. When I was 13, my best girlfriend's mother died of cancer. And I still to this day remember my mom saying to me, after she passed, whatever you do, Susan, don't ever be afraid to bring up her name after the fact. And Linda and I, to this day, we still talk about her mother. And at my mom's memorial service, I raised that. And I stated exactly what she had told me. And I asked the 600 people that turned up during a Northeaster snowstorm to honor my mom. I said, let's never be afraid to speak her name. And Honestly, that is why this book is, is in a way so deeply special to me because I wrote it in honor of her because she was known as a serial connector um, mm. long before the internet, long before social media, using the old-fashioned telephone and a, a manual typewriter. When I think now that I can in some teeny, teeny way keep her memory alive, to me, even if the book sells 10 copies, I hope it sells a few more than that, but me, at least I have done, you know, a real honor um, and tribute to her. Yeah, well, that that's really kind of the point of the podcast is really to see how these life experiences really can allow you to create from a place that you can use the experience um, to either be beneficial in your journey and hopefully in the journey of others. And, you know, it's, it's not to kind of replace the loss and the trauma and the, you know, um, and, and all that, that is there with something as tragic as yeah. the experience that you went through. But you do at a certain point make the decision that you want to live and that there's some value in this experience you've had. Yeah. You talked a little bit about kind of the, the, the risk piece you know, tell me a little bit more about, okay, what, what did you do then with, with that kind of next step? I'm curious, you know, to kind of learn a little bit more about from, from that time in your life, you know, up to the book, you know, <laughs> a lot happens, right? Oh so like, yeah, t- talk, talk a little bit about like what, what you do next yeah. and kind of how you really start to get into your career and your life. Well, I often start conversations saying I've had nine lines um, on that 
It has not been, it has been a very secure, I can never say the word, securitous, ah, you know the word I'm trying to say, securitous mm-hmm. journey. Yeah. Part of the theme of the book is this notion that it is the detours, not the destination. And I have had multiple detours and multiple losses. But I did end up in Southern California. I had been working for USA Today in Washington, and they transferred me to Southern California, which made me laugh because it felt like living in um, 501C. What what was the name of that? Baywatch. Like every day seemed Mm -hmm. like Baywatch, which growing up on the East Coast and living in DC was almost hysterical because people would leave work at four o'clock to go golfing. And, you know, when you live in New York City or Washington, D.C. or Boston, that's just not the case. And I used to joke that they didn't need weathermen because every day was 75 and sunny. But it was, I think, in some ways therapeutic for me to have that opportunity to start over. But as far as I could run, you know, the the demon was still there, the hurt, the pain, the sorrow. Um, And I ended up leaving the job that I was working at, which was USA Today, because I won't bore you with all the details, but I ended up joining a company called PR Newswire, which is a company I would be with over 17 years. Um, But I was ending, it ended up that I became that person that was running special projects, meaning every two years I would be put on a different project, which actually for someone who has somewhat of ADD, it was great because, you know, I was able to do something, kick it out of the park and then go on to the next thing. And I think what I found was is, as the busier, the, the busier I made myself, the less I had to deal with the pain. And mm-hmm. while I was doing or working there, I started to get very involved in nonprofits and supporting nonprofits as my way to give back. And probably subliminally to honor, again, my mom's life working for public television, vision. You know, as a child, I would say to her, mom, why aren't you working for, you know, PBS? I'm sorry, why aren't you working for ABC or CBS or any of the the the, the, the real TV stations? Because you make a lot more money. And she would say, because the content is terrible. Mm. So, mm. you know, there was this sense of, okay, I, you know, need to be doing good in this world. And quite frankly, I found that joining nonprofits wherever I would be moving would be a great way to meet people who had similar values. So that became very much of our, also of who I was. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious, I appreciate you saying that in some ways, keeping busy really kind of helps you not have to deal with the pain. When you think about that, do you think that that was really helpful to have you move through that time yeah. or yeah. did you eventually still need to deal with the pain? Oh, yeah, I'm still dealing with the pain. Yeah. I'm still, I mean, and... And how did you do that? How, how do you eventually choose to deal with the pain? I never did. Okay. And I'm sure it comes out in all kinds of weird fix and this and that. Also, humans are pretty resilient. Mm-hmm. And I think... You know, building a company at the age of 48 took a lot. (laughs) So, and then serving on multiple boards. I mean, as you can see, I keep myself very busy, but I, I don't, I don't know the, the specific answer. I mean, obviously I went through years of therapy. It's not like, I mean, the easiest thing would be just to bring her back. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and and when you say you never did, you know, it, it sounds like, you did do a lot of work around this. I mean, if you're in years in therapy yeah. and, you know, it, it's just what, what I, I don't know if this is what you meant, but it, it sounds to me like 
it's a pain that you just can't make go away. It is what it is, right? It's just not something you can you can heal from entirely. It becomes part of who you are. I will tell you, um, in 1987, six months after she was killed, and I still, to this day, remember reading this New York Times op-ed by Anna Quinlan, the writer, who basically in the article was talking about how she lost her mom. And she said that when she was 20, 21, 22, and she would walk into a party and she would introduce herself. She didn't say this, but she wanted to say, Hi, I'm Anna Quinlan, and I lost my mother to cancer when I was 18. It was such a defining factor of who she was. And the fact that now, 34 years later, I still remember, I can see the article. And over the years, occasionally I've Googled, I mean, you can still find it online. But I think that defines anyone who goes through tragedy, whether you're 10 or 20 or or what have you. And the co-writer of my book, Jackie Ashton, she lost her mother at age nine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, so so we had an immediate bonding. Um, but I do think one of the ways I have dealt with over over all these years is my commitment to service and my commitment to giving back. I mean, I have funded now 18 women-led startups, um, angel invested. I'm not an heiress. I don't, you know, I, I don't <laughs> have millions and millions of dollars. But I did that to help these women realize their dreams and be able to create jobs and livelihoods. I have to believe that comes from somehow trying to fill a gap in me. Mm-hmm. I mean, why else? I mean, mm-hmm. If I was to really deeply um, unravel. Well, I think it all makes a lot of sense in that, you know, when something really tragic happens, there's a, uh, a trauma of some kind that we end up kind of um, living the way we live as a result of it. And, and and that can go a number of ways, right? I mean, that can go down some paths that are really dark and really destructive. And it can also go into things like creation yeah. and, and service, right? And in your case, you know, sounds like what you did is you poured yourself into your work, into building businesses, and to engaging in service, both through wanting to do well for people, do good for people, but also um, to connect with people, which ends up becoming like a really, really big part of your life. And so, you know, I kind of have a belief when I just, you know, kind of think about it and it's the way I think about things is that, you know, you're never really off the path. You know, that even if maybe you're soothing with busyness, right, or by serving other people, it's a part of exactly where you are and what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, bottom. And, 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 you know, um, let's talk about that then, because, you know, you end up creating some really amazing stuff and doing some incredible work, you know, elaborate a little bit on kind of, you know, that piece. Specifically, you mean the work, my company's work, or yeah, you're the co- the company you create, and you know a little bit more about you know the the service work yep. and sure. the angel investing. I mean, I think this is you know you kind of just said I've invested in yep. you know yep. eighteen <laughs> women, yeah, but this is a big deal. This is really great. Like we need to highlight that. But isn't that funny? Like I am just like, well, of course I did. Of course, I, like yeah. everybody, you know. 
No, I'm my, I'm my hardest critic. But um, no, I, I founded my company at the age of 48 when it was... I had no intention of being an entrepreneur. In fact, you know, I still am terrible at Excel files and, or Excel, which I think if you run a business, you really should know how to do Excel. Um, hmm. But not necessarily. <laughs> and it really just, it was a lark because the, the consultancy I was with previously, there was a exodus of talent. And in the consulting world, when the talent leaves, guess what? You need to start figuring out what you're going to do. So I was starting to get nervous. I was living at the time with my boyfriend who was not earning any um, any financial return. And so the lift, the, the heavy load was on my shoulders to kind of maintain the household. Um, and I knew I either needed to find a new job fast or I needed to ex- at least have some something, some interim opportunity. And two organizations said, Susan, if you decide to go out on your own, we'll hire you for two, you know, for for um, a couple of months each. So I left on a Friday. I hung the shingle on a Monday. I never took any time off because I thought they both were going to change their mind. And I never would have named it McPherson Strategies if I thought it was going to become anything because it was my ex-husband from years ago, from 2003. Now, I mind you, he's a great guy. We had an amicable breakup. We're still friends today. But I never, I mean, to me, it was the most narcissistic thing in the world to name a company after you. I mean, I get it. People do it all the time. It just, it does not fit my character or the essence of me. So anyhow, now eight years later, we're thriving. We just hired our 12th employee. The world now is really making purpose, compassion, empathy, social impact, sustainability, number one. So in some ways, we were a little bit ahead of the game. But again, this was never part of the plan. I also continued my craziness of getting on nonprofit boards. Uh, probably the one that has had the greatest impact on me, at least from a uh, awareness and learning perspective, is the U.S. arm of the U.N. High Commission for Refugees. So every year for the last six years prior to 2020, course 2020, I would visit refugee hotspots in the world from Kenya and Uganda to um, the Syrian refugee camps in Jordan to the border of Venezuela, where you have thousands and thousands of Venezuelans fleeing. And I did that at, at my own cost to go, but because if I'm going to be advocating or raising money for this cause, I felt I really needed to understand. And I have to say, no one on this planet is more resilient than somebody who's fleeing their homes with nothing. Anyhow, I don't mean to take us down a, a different path, but well, no, I think it's a good one because you kind of started off um, talking about this a little bit too. That you know your belief around you know experiences and you know what you see and and where you go and the value you have around that. I I also value that experience driven life quite a bit. You know, I believe that you know I've taken my kids and family around the world. And it wasn't, you know, ever to kind of, you know, get to fancy places and, and restaurants. It was always about the experience. Yeah. It didn't matter where we were. I just was so happy to be together experiencing something. And, you know, your experiencers are not ones that are kind of for the faint of heart. You're, you're actually getting into some places where you're seeing some things that are, pretty eye-opening yeah. and pretty impactful. 
And uh, that, that, that's got to shape you. That's got to really change your worldview and your perspective on life. And make you, I mean, talk about making you a more compassionate human being to understand true human struggle, correct? You know, I, but also by going on those trips, I wasn't having to travel alone too. Um, you know, for years, the thought of, I would travel on business, quote unquote, alone all the time. But the thought of going on a holiday alone was was a bit unnerving. And when my ex-boyfriend, not the ex-husband, and I broke up in 2014, I, my, you know, it, it's interesting because the S-curve of my company went like this. You know, it just, it, it went right up because all of a sudden I could just focus on, on the business. But all of a sudden it dawned on me, you know, I, I'm not getting any younger. I should start taking real vacations <laughs> alone. Mm. And what's interesting is the last trip I took before the pandemic was to Antarctica. Mm. And somebody, this is just a funny side note. Somebody said to me before I was going, is this your first trip to Antarctica? And I remember laughing, thinking, who goes to Antarctica twice, right? I mean, unless you're a scientist. (laughs) And the day I got back, I couldn't wait at the thought of returning. Wow. And I was I was just asked the other day where would be the first place I would go when this when this all ends. And I said Antarctica. <laughs> and why? I've never been. Tell me, you know, what is it about it that it's so special? Because you do you feel like you're on another planet. Because you kind of are. Yeah. There's I yeah. mean, you you the entire time the only humans you see, of course, are on the boat that you're on. The the colors, the light, the water. I mean, it, it is extraordinary. And I I've never been somewhere and I've been to some pretty remote places like Afghanistan and Laos and Sri Lanka. You don't hear anything, mm-hmm. which is kind of odd. But, yeah, that's interesting. But, but strange. And probably nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably really nice, especially um, as you sit in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's been, it's yeah. been remarkably quiet while we've done. It's it. pretty quiet for Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk about the book. I want to really um, understand kind of how the book came to be. For starters, you know, oftentimes, and I just interviewed somebody else who's releasing a book, and I've you know, thought about it myself. And, you know, I Don't think sometimes <laughs> I hear a lot of that and, and sometimes, and I haven't done it. Um, a lot of people feel like it's just like something that's coming out of them that has to be done, but not in your case. Tell me about the book. Why the book? Well, I, again, and I hate to keep bringing up my mom, but I, if anything that I inherited from her, was this thirst to connect people. There's, I get so much joy. It's probably like some neuroses, but I absolutely love introducing people and then watching the magic that happens. And it, it, it's not just the immediate action, but it is what happens over the test of time. And I will say I am blessed with a really remarkable memory. And again, I say these things now that probably I never would have been able to say in my 30s or 40s. But um, my older brother has a remarkable memory for numbers. So he can remember, you know, the exact time and date of somebody's death or birth, but actually just like the the actual minute. Um, I remember people and their descriptors, like, you know, what is their children's favorite food? I mean, really stupid, wasteful stuff that doesn't matter. But when you're introducing people can be really um, helpful. Because I find if you introduce people and you bring some sense of commonality, whether it's, you know, they they have 10 years ago visited the same city and went to the same restaurant to, you know, both of them having loved the same favorite book 
I mean, I love to be able to do that so that then when they carry on, they're super comfortable with one another. So having done this since, you know, probably my high school years, about five years ago, folks started saying to me, you really should write a book about your methodology. And I'm like, but I don't have a methodology. I just do it. Um, And then more and more people kept coming to say that to me. And I have probably over the last six years held nothing short of 50 to 75 gatherings on my roof deck, celebrating everything from new babies to weddings to um, politicians running for office to raising money for causes where I would literally just go about and introduce people. And I remember reading about Lois Weisberg that um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in The New Yorker years ago. And she, I'm not certainly comparing myself to her, but she was the connector in Chicago where she was able to bring together people from all different walks of life and make the magic happen. So reading that, I was like, well, I'm kind of like a mini her. (laughs) And maybe it could help people if I shared kind of how I go about doing it. So that was the impetus for the book. And the book is 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 broken down into three parts. It is a business book. So I, I was told I had to be very prescriptive. And again, you're talking to the girl that doesn't like Excel. So prescriptive is sometimes hard for me. But it is broken down into three parts. Um, gather, ask, do. And I'm happy to go through those parts if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, I I, I saw that and I'm very intrigued by that. And um, why don't we do that first? I want to kind of go back and talk to you a little bit about why not to do the book and the experience <laughs> of writing the book. And even the fact that somebody told you, you know, it has to be prescriptive, you know. So um, let, let, let's talk about where you landed, though, because I love it. Gather, ask, do. Sure. Well, the gap, I mean, first of all, it is going to be when you go to the bookstore, it will be in the networking genre. And I make the case that this is not about networking. There is there is a need and networking has existed. But the way I look at networking is it's very transactional. It's walking into a room and meeting as many people as you can and getting business cards. And then, you know, six months from now, when you need something, you go to that card and you write that person and say, hey, I'm looking for a job or, hey, can you introduce me to? That is not what this is about. The three components gather is first looking inside yourself and really doing an honest kind of audit or assessment of what is it? What is the community you want to build around you? Who do you want to who, who, who do you want to have in your life more than just a high and buy? Okay, so it's not a numbers game. It can be three people, it can be 300 people, but it's really looking at looking first at yourself. And part of that also took me into this area of FOMO because a lot of people will say, well, how do I gather if, you know, I don't get invited to places? So my contention is be the gatherer. Don't Mm. wait to be invited. That way, instead of fear of missing out, you actually create joy of meeting others which I termed very kind of goofy, <laughs> but Jomo. And when you hear Jomo, you think of joy of missing out. And I say, no, it's the joy of meeting others. Um, mm. Because at least in my life and many people that I know, it's actually amazing meeting people because you learn so yeah. much yeah. about yourself, about them, about the world that you would not have. You, you, would, you, you learn things you would never know if you didn't meet that person. Yeah, um, um, which, is, which is really only true if you 
are of that mindset. Well, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, because I think a lot of people think about kind of networking events or even gatherings as like, uh, oh, I have to go do this thing. Yeah. And, you know, oh, there's going to be all these people there and all this small talk. And, you know, you can kind of go into like, uh, uh, it's not for me, but right. if you're going into it, with a joy yeah. for meeting other people open to what's possible, it's really, you know, amazing. Well, I think also if you walk into that room, not with the, like, I mean, believe me, I'm the first person to want to hide in the bathroom. I mean, I know I seem like I'm an extrovert. I'm, there are moments where I am just like, oh my God, I don't belong here. I'm like mm-hmm. nothing. I don't matter. But the thing is, if you, if you look around and you say maybe two people, you don't have to meet everyone. You can have conversations with two people. And yeah. there are areas, there, there are, portions of the book that address, if you're an introvert, how do you do this? Um, mm, good. And you actually, you know, you find the connector in the room and you hang with that connector who then yeah. can help you. It's a little like, sure. like your wingman or wingwoman. All right. Good. Good. All right. Ask. Tell yeah. us about ask. Well, ask is exactly what you were just, you know, leads to what you were saying is, first of all, there's a chapter that's dedicated to what are the questions you can ask to elicit responses. And I will tell you, when I I am five foot tall with heels, okay? My license says I'm five foot, so technically I'm five foot. But over the years, when I would walk into the proverbial conference room, boardroom, convention hall, dinner party, no one would see me. I mean, I, I mean, yes, I mean, we all look over others to see who else is in the room. I mean, I don't because I can't see, but most people, you know, it's just, a, it, it's human nature, right? We're curious. But I found to actually get people to engage, if you ask them questions about themselves, generally, and again, this is a generalization, but generally, they will respond. And if you ask questions that aren't about, gee, what's the weather like in your city today if you're on a virtual call? Or what did you have for lunch? But instead, ask questions like, how have you been faring during this pandemic? And what do you need help with? Chances are, unless they're an ogre, that person is going to respond to you. So to me, it's really um, finessing. And I think of this as anything else, whether it's riding a bike or, you know, hopscotching, you get better with practice. But I do believe if you have these types of meaningful conversations and ask those kind of questions, it will elicit the responses that then enable you to go to the do. And the do, um, I don't want to say one of each of the three is more important, But the do is creating trust and reliability and following through. You know, people often say to me, you know, Susan, on your epitaph, it's going to say she got shit done. (laughs) You know what? If that's what it says, so be it. I guess there's a whole lot worse things it could say. But I pride myself on when somebody says, can you do this? I usually get it done. And also, if I can't get it done, I fess up. And I either say I can't get it done or I find somebody who might be able to help them. So that is the, that is the kind of circle. Um, mm-hmm. But if you don't ask the proper questions, you won't know what is important to that person. Therefore, guess what? You can't be helpful. Mm, that's wonderful. I love it. It's, um, we, we, we have a, a kind of an internal joke because I once sat in a meeting with a big group of architects and bankers and all these people that were trying to kind of figure out how to make this project we were working on happen. And I said, you know, listen, our superpower is that we get shit done. 
<laughs> and they like thought that was like, the craziest. I'm like, no, I mean it. Like we don't sit in rooms and talk about stuff and then don't do it. We, if we're going to talk about it, we're going to get it done. And I think it's really an important thing. But, but I love the, the part before ask, right? Because you, what you're saying is don't come in there and start telling people what you have to offer or what you want to sell them, mm-hmm. right? People, people hear enough of that. They might really actually want to hear all of that. But what they really want is, um, how can I help? What do yeah. you need? How can I support yeah. you, give you some assistance? And then you know whether you can do it or not. And if you can and you want to, you 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 yeah. will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Two years ago, I looked back at the financial records of our company, which of course I have trouble reading. And I learned that 98% of our business was inbound. And it dawned on me that that isn't the norm, right? I mean, consulting mm. firms have to do marketing, et cetera. I mean, yes, granted, I gave talks, uh, you know, I, I did speeches, I wrote articles, but 98% is a pretty significant number. And it dawned on me that all those years of meeting with people, being inquisitive, doing the ask, and then doing the do has come back in spades. And it's not like when I was 25 and I met with somebody. Brenda South, for instance, who was a client of mine when I worked at PR Newswire and she was working for Western Digital. I still remember this. It is not like I said to her, if I do this for you in 30 years, I'm going to come back and you're going to hire my firm. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, that's, that, that's not what it's about. It's this. Right. And that is, I think, the real difference between what I think this book is all about and traditional networking. Mm-hmm. Great. And, and, you know, sometimes I think it's really surprising in the way that things do come back around, right? When you're not actually focused on an outcome, <laughs> something even greater can happen. Tell me just because I think that this is interesting. You know, we have people that are um, in this space that listen to the podcast. There's a lot of dialogue, like I said, about platforms and and writing books. Tell me, you know, are you just at the point where this book is about to launch and it's just been tough and fatiguing <laughs> and hard? Or what? tell me, you know, really, really, what should people know about writing a book? Sure. Well, hopefully they have. I just honestly, and it's maybe my insecurities. I never felt I had anything that anybody would be interested in. So getting over that hump has been a fleeting, you know, throughout the whole process. I kept, you know, as 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 I was working on it, I kept thinking, well, nobody cares, nobody cares. So that that's my own internal demon. So I, I certainly don't want to put anyone on on that thought, but I do want to make sure people realize it's a huge effort. And you need a village. You, you know, the days are gone where you would get a massive advance and, you know, you'd be able to take time off from your day job. Um, again, you know, there are fabulous authors and writers out there that are, that, that this is their job and they do wonderfully at it. And I would never say, but I think for those of us who have day jobs, it, it's a big slog. And I don't think, and this is no, nothing negative against my publisher or any other publishers, Gone are the day where they do a lot to support you. Mm-hmm. So you you do really need that village. And you know, I'm I don't have kids, I don't have a partner or spouse, I don't have parents. So obviously I have a lot more time. But even then, it was it 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 took an enormous effort and enormous yeah. time. And yeah. you know, I certainly am not going into this with any expectations of making any money. Um, but I do think it it does 
Well, I'm just going to peel back the letter, layers. It's a love letter to my mom. And it's a wonderful way to keep her, her memory alive to people that, you know, in the next five years would never, ever, ever had heard of her. I, yeah. So I think, I think that is really reason enough and kind of in a similar fashion to, you know, how you are structuring the gather ass do, you know, I see it as you're, you're showing up and there's a need for something that you can provide to other people and you're doing it and we'll see what happens. But it seems to be a really relevant and important and right step to take. And again, I think, you know, I, I've thought about this myself. And if, if you're only doing it to, as, a, as a love letter, that's enough. That's enough. Um, but I think it's going to really be impactful, especially coming out of COVID. I mean, you know, the art of connecting, um, the lost art of connecting. Uh, I think it's wonderful. So well, I, will, I will tell you briefly, the fact that we now have a glimmer of hope, you know, with the vaccines coming, with, with government that is pushing to get more people vaccinated, we, we can now actually look forward. To, to the day when we are together again. So my thought is, if folks read this book, we have a chance to re- reset, to maybe continue to use the technology that enables us to do this, thankfully, um, which separates us from 1918, but also take advantage of the humanity of it all when we can be together again and never, ever, ever take advantage or, or, or not value how important our human connections are. Yeah, I think you're right. People, I think, have a, a better sense of just how important it is to be in connection with people after what we've been through over the past year. So I'm excited to have you launch this book, March 23rd, The Lost Art of Connecting. Susan, any final thoughts to share with the audience? Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. Well, I want to thank your audience for listening to this crazy woman. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to open my roof deck to all of them if um, when they can travel again and they can come to Brooklyn. I I love, love, love meeting new people and Um, And this was a joy. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so very much. Wonderful. Yes, same. And we'll make sure people can find you. And again, buy the book, March 23rd, The Lost Art of Connecting, Susan McPherson. Thank you so much for your time and being with us. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram, at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter, at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.